Children's Church or children head to the back of the sanctuary and we have folks going to take you down for Children's Church. And while they're going, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for this moment that we can come together and put all of our focus upon you and your word. We thank you for your presence here and for bringing us to this place. We're here, we know, because you have led us here by your spirit. And thank you for each one who has cooperated with that leading by coming and opening their mind and heart to you. We pray now that you'll speak to us through your word, your holy and perfect word. It's inspired by you. And we know that you have a message for us today. Help us to hear it. Help us to obey and respond. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your amazing love. And we pray for our children and those who will be sharing the good news with them. And we just pray your will be done now in these moments. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We have been going through the, uh, the letter to the Philippians verse by verse. And we come to this passage. So we continue that journey through Philippians and also, at the same time, we begin a series of messages leading up to Easter on the cross. The cross, and we'll also be talking about, of course, the resurrection. But this morning, this passage fits perfectly with the subject of the cross. The cross, and this is love. It is fitting that one of the greatest theological passages in the Bible, and that's what this is, is also one of the greatest passages on love. Because God came out of love. Jesus came down that he might save us from our sins. Paul illustrates the mind or the attitude that we should have in our lives as followers of Jesus. He illustrates that mind or attitude we should have by talking about the mind of Christ, the attitude of Jesus. And that's what this description that has also a great theological statement about Jesus Christ, it is the answer to how we can have the right mind, the right attitude as followers of Christ. And so there's, there's two levels here that we see as we look at this passage. This passage. One is this, this great Christological passage because in this illustration, he tells us a great deal about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what he did. But at the same time, it has this practical meaning that this is the mind, the attitude displayed lived out in the life of Jesus that ought to be in our lives as well. And so the clear and unmistakable application of this passage is this. Verse 5 tells us to do what Jesus did, to think what Jesus thought, and to have the same attitude towards servanthood that Jesus had. And so as we look at the meaning of these great verses they're not just, you know, theological statements. They're also practical statements that were lived out in the life of Jesus and should be lived out 
in our lives as well. So let's read the passage, verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. Follow with me as I read. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, that's referring to Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see some very important statements here, but remember that these statements about Christ, the guiding or governing context is verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, Going back to verses 1 through 4 that we looked at a week ago, that passage is talking about how we should be willing to put others ahead of ourselves. That passage tells us we should not be the source of division or strife or controversy within the body of Christ. Instead, we ought to be thinking about what can we do under the power of God to be the person that God wants us to be. How can we minister to people the way Jesus ministered to people? It's very easy to stand back and throw stones at others who are trying to serve. It's easy to do that. It's another thing to get in there and serve yourself. Jesus didn't just stand in heaven and say, oh, those people down there are so terrible. They deserve to go to hell. They're going to go to hell. No, he didn't do that. He came. He intervened. He got involved. He did what we could never do for ourselves, and he did it by becoming a servant. The attitude of our heart and mind should always be, God, what would you have me to do? What would you have my life to be for your kingdom and for the name of Christ? And then he goes on by saying, who? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and now he's going to talk about Jesus. It's like the greatest sermon illustration ever given. That's what we're looking at today. God is leading Paul to preach this great sermon on the attitude that we as Christians ought to have. And now God lays upon Paul's heart and inspires him to write these verses about the greatest example of servanthood. And that's Jesus. And in the course of this, he tells us some amazing things about Jesus. The way of the cross, the way of life that Jesus lived and sets before us, the way of the cross reveals the love 
of God. First and foremost, this passage is telling us that Jesus is God. Jesus is more than a man. He is more than a prophet. There are those in this world that recognize Jesus as being a prophet. Did you know that Islam recognizes Jesus as being a prophet? They call him the Nabi Isa. They recognize him as a prophet, but they don't recognize him as being God. But the Bible tells us unequivocally, without any doubt, that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God himself. Look what it says there in verse 6. Who being in the form of God. Now, when it says the form of God, it's not, it's not saying the shape of God. God is spirit, right? And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what the scripture tells us. But what he means by the form of God is that Jesus has all the attributes of God. He is God. That is his nature. That's who he is. Who being God, who being in the form of God. It reminds us of John 1.14 where John opened uh, there in his, uh, in his book, the gospel, in the Gospel of John says, The Word became flesh. The Word meaning Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Took up residence among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God tabernacled among us. God took on human flesh. Who being in the form of God, that's Jesus. Jesus is God himself. Don't ever doubt that. And this is how you can almost always immediately identify a false religion or a cult. Go directly to what do they believe about Jesus. And if they say he is a pro just a prophet, he was just a great teacher, he was an angel, a created being, but he was not God, any of those things are false. They are wrong. I don't care uh, what else they say that may sound appealing, how kind and, and wonderful they appear to be. They're deceived. They're deceived because the Bible says Jesus is God. Who is being in the form of God? And then we begin now to see that the way of the cross requires humility and service. We look at not only who Jesus is, is in terms that he was God, he is God, but what then did he do? Well, he came into this world. We celebrate that at Christmas, don't we? We talk about the incarnation, that Jesus became incarnate. He took on flesh. He had a body and was a man just like we are human beings. He became a man. Who being in the form of God... And we see now a downward progression described or a humiliation, a self-imposed one. Jesus was willing to leave heaven and come to earth. And there are seven things now, each one more significant that are listed here that what Jesus was willing to do as he humbled himself. And the first is, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Isn't it interesting that this all begins with an attitude? Let this mind be in you, 
And it says he did not consider. Did not consider. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Some translations translate this in a different way. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what that means is he didn't need to feel like he had to hang on to all the attributes of being God because he knew he is God and always will be. But he was willing to set aside all of the glory and, and, and majesty of being God in order to come into this world and become a man like you and me, a human being, willing to come to be the great sacrifice for the sin of all people once and for all. But this sacrifice wouldn't be a lamb. Uh, it wouldn't be a goat. It wouldn't be a calf. It would be the eternal Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Jesus himself once for all would come to deal with the matter of sin and death and hell. And it began with his attitude. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be snatched. That's where the, uh, the translation of robbery comes from. He didn't feel like, like a thief. He had to try to take something that wasn't his. All of what it meant to be God was already his. And he was willing to come and set that all aside. Now, he didn't stop being God. That's not what this means. It means that God himself was willing to come and take on flesh. He became the infinite, eternal God-man once and for all. Uh, for all time, Jesus would be 100% God and also 100% man. And he was willing to do that so that our sin could be forgiven. That's the first step, the attitude. What kind of step do we need to take in terms of attitude? There, there's a lot of parallels here, a lot of irony here. Here is God himself, Jesus Christ who didn't consider hanging on to all of the uh, honor and, and majesty of heaven. He didn't consider that something he had to hang on to. He was willing to humble himself. What about us? Are we too good to be a servant? Are we too smart to be a servant? Are we just a little bit better than everybody else? So, you know, that's for the little people to do, but not somebody like me. Is that our attitude? Well, if that's our mind, if that's how we consider ourselves, and if that's how we consider other people, we will not be a servant. We'll be a critic. We'll be absent. We'll stand and watch others and complain about what they're doing, but we won't do a thing for the kingdom of God. Well, that's not what Jesus did. He considered it not something he had to grasp at, to hang on to being God, because he is God. And that is what enabled him then to be willing to come. The second step, he made himself of no reputation, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. The, the Greek word here, for made himself of no reputation, that is the word that has been seized upon and used as the name theologically for this passage. This is the kenosis passage. 
the word kenosis in the Greek meaning emptying himself, self-emptying. He made himself of no reputation. In other words, he poured himself out. He emptied himself of all of the majesty of being in heaven. Now, he didn't empty himself of being God. He just came into this world as God, but he didn't come as a great king. He didn't come announcing that he had all authority. The angels announced that about him. But he became a carpenter, didn't he? He came into a simple home. He grew up in a, in a simple life. And until he was 30 years old, he worked as a carpenter. And so Jesus emptied himself. He laid aside all of the glory of heaven and what that meant so that he could become our servant, our Savior, the suffering servant, to take our sin in his own body and die for you and for me. Whatever the prerogatives of God, of those prerogatives, Christ was willing to deny himself for that time so that he could become the Savior of the world. He emptied himself. Wouldn't it be amazing? What could be done if we emptied ourselves of all of our pride and our arrogance and the idea that we have to hang on to whatever honor that we think we have or should have? What if we emptied ourselves? And we really don't have anything to hang on to compared to Jesus. Jesus really had something that he didn't have to leave because he was perfect. He was sinless. He was God and is God. But he was willing to lay that down so that he could become the Savior of the world. And so the second step, he made himself of no reputation. So he not only considered coming, he came by emptying himself and then he came taking the form of a man. Look at verse 7. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he became a man. He took on human flesh. But not just a man. He became, and that's the next step, he became a servant. You see how every step is more humbling more humiliation that he was willing to take on, willing to endure for us. He became a servant. The word bondservant uh, is a word that speaks of a slave, someone who had to serve other people. He did that willingly. He took that on himself. He became a servant. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. That is Step number five. You see that? Verse eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now, you would think that he'd already humbled himself by doing all of these things that we've already talked about. But he wasn't finished. He came as a man and he humbled himself. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon, I hope you will remember these three words. He humbled himself. I want us to say those words. I want us to say them three times, each time emphasizing a different word of the three. The first, 
He humbled himself. Say that with me. He humbled himself. Now let's emphasize the second word. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. And now let's emphasize the third word. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. If we could just remember those words as we go through our lives. If Jesus humbled himself, why won't we? How in the world can we withhold that out of gratitude and love for him who humbled himself? Now, I know that we talk about what other people did to Jesus. And there, were, there was much injustice done to Jesus. And I'm not minimizing that. But never forget that Jesus came of his own free will and gave his life for us. He humbled himself. The God of heaven was willing to humble himself. He did that. And all because of his love. The objective was you and me and every person who will ever live that they might have a way of forgiveness, a way to go to heaven and not go to hell, a way to not be separated from God, but to be brought together under the love and grace of God himself. Jesus humbled himself. And then the final two steps are unimaginable. He humbled himself, and what does it say? The sixth step of humiliation. It says, and became obedient to the point of death. This is the creator. The creator of all that is. The creator of life. Humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death. He was willing to die. He was willing to die. He was the great substitute. He took your place. He stepped into my place, bearing my sin. It was me that should have died on a cross. But you know what? If I had died on a cross, it wouldn't have, all it would have done would have been a just death for my sin. It wouldn't have paid for my sin. It wouldn't have removed my sin. It wouldn't have brought me together with God. I would have still been lost, still separated from God for all of eternity. It would have just been me dying a just death for my sin. But Jesus, because he was God and a perfect man, he was willing and able to take our sin in his own body. And when he died on the cross, it destroyed the authority and power of sin and death in your life if you will receive his love and grace into your life. He's bought and paid for your deliverance. And he offers it to you. All you have to do is accept it. Just like you accept any gift. But this is the greatest gift of all. Just receive his love and mercy. He bought and paid for your salvation, your eternity with God, your heaven. When he went to that cross, he was obedient to the point of death. And then the scripture adds, even the death of the cross. Not just willing to die, but to die the most horrific death of all. A criminal's death. 
a criminal's death. It doesn't elaborate. Nowhere does the scripture really elaborate a lot about crucifixion because it was so terrible. And everybody in the first century, they knew more than they wanted to know about crucifixion. We thought that was just something all in the past, didn't we, until the last few years. And what we have seen with ISIS literally crucifying people. And thank God that they are destroyed now as a caliphate. But you've seen some of those terrible things. That's why the scripture doesn't elaborate a lot about crucifixion because it's so terrible. And people knew what that was. Even the death of the cross. And I think Paul, as God led him to write this, Paul was still astounded at the idea that God would become a man and be willing to humble himself to this extent, even to the death of the cross. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He died a criminal's death. He died a transgressor's death. Because he was dying for transgressors, wasn't he? He was dying for sinners. He became sin. He suffered outside the city gate. He didn't suffer inside the place of honor and respectability. They took him outside the walls of Jerusalem to the place reserved for the refuse of society. And that's where he died, even the death of the cross. One writer has said, what a dramatic distance Jesus traveled from heaven to the cross, from robes to rags, from being served to serving. How far it indeed from the golden streets of heaven to the cobblestones of the Via Dolorosa, from the songs of heaven's chorus to the cries of an angry mob. What distance did he travel from heaven's throne room to Bethlehem's manger, from being exalted to being executed? And why did he do it? He did it to be obedient, yes, but he did it because of love, because of love for you and me. What a, what a distance Jesus traveled for us. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross. And the final point, thank God it doesn't end there, right? The way of the cross brings God's exaltation. The death on the cross was the payment for sin. The resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus then is what gives victory to you and me. The two go together, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus did not just die. He rose again, and he's alive today. And the Bible here describes what God the Father says about God the Son, Jesus. Verse 9, it goes on. And I'm sure Paul loved writing these words as he was inspired. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. In other words, everyone, right? Everyone, everything, everywhere. He's not leaving anything out. He even threw those in under the earth. There's a lot of debate about exactly what that means. I think it means everyone in heaven, 
everyone in hell and everyone on this earth, everyone and everything must acknowledge and someday will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. God has exalted him. He raised him up from the dead by the same spirit who now lives in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he is the Lord of all. Folks, this is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And it is a servant that made it possible. Jesus came as a servant, not as a dictator. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as a commander. He is all of, he, he's a king and a commander. He is the authority over all. But he came and served. He became a servant so that all of this might be possible. He raised for all of eternity Jesus to be now exalted. And his name is the name that is above every name. Now we can see that in our world today. You just go somewhere and say the name of Jesus. I guarantee you, you'll get a reaction. You'll either get somebody who will say, praise the Lord, I love Jesus. Or you may get somebody who looks at you like you're crazy. Or with anger. But you will get a reaction of some kind. Because that name is exalted. It is the name that is above every name. And now there's all kinds of debate about the name of Jesus. There are people that reject him and discount him and mock him and use his name as a swear word. But what the scripture is saying here is that the day is going to come when every knee is going to bow. Every skeptic, every atheist, every agnostic, every person who has just ignored Jesus someday is going to bow the knee to him. And they're going to have to confess that he is Lord. They may be separated from him for eternity because they wouldn't receive his love. But they're going to acknowledge him too. Along with all of those who love him. Wouldn't it be better to bow the knee to him now? Wouldn't it be better to love Jesus today? And to confess him that he is Lord? Everyone's going to do it someday. The question is when and what will it mean? You can give your life to this Jesus. The cross, the greatest example of love, the greatest love ever given was given just for you. And every person can say that because Jesus died for every person. And his love for you is so great. He will forgive you of your sin. He will come into your life, and he will give you eternity. We glorify God when we obey what God tells us to do. And so when we give our lives to Jesus, you are bringing glory to God. You are exalting the name of Jesus. We're going to have a hymn of invitation in just a moment, and that will be an opportunity for you, if you have never received Jesus Christ into your life, you can do that now. This same Jesus who humbled himself even to the death of the cross and who is now exalted, the name above every name, that Jesus will come to live in your life because he loves you.
Will you open your heart to him? Will you say, Jesus, I know I need your help. I am a sinner. Please forgive me. Come into my life. I want to give my life to you. He will hear that prayer, and he will give you eternal life. For Christians, perhaps you need to rededicate yourself to this Jesus, to being the kind of Christian that Jesus wants you to be. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Are you willing to exchange the mind, the attitude you have for the attitude of Christ? Don't hang on to that attitude of arrogance and pride. Let it go. Ask Jesus to give you the mind of Christ. He'll do it if we're willing, if we're willing to let him control us. Whatever God wants, may his will be done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to humble yourself even to the death of the cross. And we want to leave here today with every person in this congregation acknowledging you as the Lord of all in their lives. So, Lord, we pray you'll now convict us and convince us. And if there are decisions we need to make here this morning, we want your will to be done. Maybe someone here needs a church home and you've laid it on their heart. May they now be obedient to you. And by so doing, bring honor and glory to this name that is above every name. We just pray, Lord, that our lives might be a great reflection of your power and grace. And may your will be done in us right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.